for some reason, I, I decided I had to play violin in about the second grade. And I remember my dad said, don't play violin, that's nerdy, you should play guitar. And I didn't listen to him. <laughs> and I played violin, and I didn't really like it. I played it for about five years. And then sure enough, I quit and played guitar after that. But the reason I switched to guitar was because I, I, I didn't really want to play classical music. It didn't really resonate with me. And I was interested in Jimi Hendrix, mostly at that time. I think I was about 11 or 12. That's guitarist and composer Mary Halverson, a very active player on the New York jazz and experimental music scene since 2002. She leads a trio, a quintet, and a septet. Somehow, she also finds time to play in almost two dozen other groups. I'm David Gorin. This is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. In June 2012, Mary spoke with me at our New York City studio. It seems like you put a lot of thought into your sound. I'm trying to have a sound that's as unique to me as, as possible. Of course, it's, it's impossible not to be influenced by other guitar players and any kind of musicians, but I am trying to do something personal. I guess that's my main goal uh, in terms of a sound on guitar. And, you know, I don't know. It's just I've, I've figured out what I like, and I've tried to um, take specific elements and really work on those. For example, I really like a dry, clear sound. Um, I've, I've never used reverb, and I, I really like a strong attack uh, with a pick and, and thick strings, and I, I really like to have the acoustic sound of the guitar come through as much as possible. So those are all things I, I work on and, and try to develop. You have a big guitar. Yeah. Were you always playing like a big hollow body style? No, my first guitar was actually a, a black and white Stratocaster uh, because of the Hendrix <laughs> obsession. And then I got a semi-hollow body. And I think I got that guitar in 2000. And I've never found a guitar I like more. <laughs> um, I, I just really like having the acoustic sound come across. I mean, I, it's electric, so I play out of an amp, but I like to blend the acoustic and electric sounds. And part of the reason why I like that sound is I love the sound of an upright bass. And the so you can hear all the, the instrument and the wood and the organic sound of the bass. And to me, the guitar that I have is as close to that as, as I'm able to get because it's, you can really hear the the physical instrument, and that's something I like about that guitar. How do you feel about traditional jazz guitar, and where do you see yourself fitting in to that? The first jazz guitar player that I really loved was Wes Montgomery, so maybe it was it was that type of a style. But I still remember, I took guitar lessons with, um, his name was E.C. Rosen, he's a jazz guitarist out of Boston, and I took lessons with him all through high school, and then I went to college, and I still came back occasionally and took a lesson with him. And I still have the sheet of paper. I, I asked him, what jazz guitar player should I check out in New York? I'm going to New York. And so I have the sheet of paper. It says Ben Monder, Kurt Rosenwinkel. <laughs> so I thought that was great. I mean, he encouraged me to check out all sorts of things. Um, and we have very different playing styles. But I was learning a lot of traditional jazz. You know, and for a long time, I kind of got, got away from that. But it's still at the root of what I do, even if I don't play traditional jazz guitar. And I don't like all of it, but it's it's something I, I appreciate, and definitely it's a, a big part of where I'm coming from, even if there's a 
maybe a love-hate relationship going on with it. What are some of the things you don't like about the traditional guitar sound? There's a lot of elements about guitar that that aren't used in that, you know, like distortion and rock and, and maybe more of a rock energy. Those are things I love about guitar that often aren't present in a more traditional jazz guitar setting. And that's not to say I don't appreciate jazz guitar. I mean, I could listen to Jim Hall play for, for days. But ultimately, for myself, I like to incorporate other elements into the music. So even though I feel like I'm probably coming from jazz more than anything else, I, I do take influence from so many other things. And I think I, I get bored easily, so I like to be able to play different styles and, and try to find interesting ways to fuse them together. And actually, when I was first listening to jazz, it was, it was very rarely guitar that caught my attention. I was usually paying attention to the saxophone or the piano or the bass. And then I discovered jazz guitarists later, but my original inspiration when I was first checking out jazz was not jazz guitar. I think that's true for a lot of jazz guitarists, too. I know yep. uh, Sonny Sharrock, he, you know, he wanted to be Coltrane you know, on <laughs> yeah, the guitar exactly. in a way. I'm also interested, again, about your sound of how you know, you're sort of distinguishing yourself be, by being dry, no reverb. But you are using, I'm not sure what the effect is, um, is it like a flange? Uh, there's an effect you use a fair amount that sounds, it's like a bendy mm-hmm. effect. It's actually a delay pedal, which is funny because it doesn't sound like delay. But if you mess with the delay time, so you have no delay time and then you move the pedal into a delay setting, it makes that sound when it, when it goes between those settings. So that was something I, I discovered maybe back in college, and I really liked it. So I, I tried to figure out a way to incorporate it into what I do. I find that a, re- a really interesting part of what you do. You don't overuse it. It's not like you're using it on everything. Oh, that's good, because sometimes I feel like I do. Because <laughs> I really like it, and I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> when you're using it, what are you sort of going for? I guess I kind of think about it as an ornamentation or, or an accent. I like to think that I could play completely acoustically with no amps, no effects, and and have that be interesting. And I actually never practice with effects. I only use them, unless I get something new, which I actually rarely get something new. But I don't practice with them. I only play them on a gig or or a rehearsal. But when I'm at home just practicing by myself, I, I always practice acoustically. So I guess I think of these things as little ways to ornament or, or add something interesting to the sound. So I try not to use them to excess, and I don't use that many. I have um, a distortion pedal that I use sometimes, and I have a, a volume pedal, which I use to make a custom tremolo, I guess. And that's about it. very clean, very deliberate lines, you know, as he's, you know, hard-picked. But then there are these moments where you build up these sort of, like, chaos clouds, or I, I don't, know, I don't right. know what they are to you exactly. 
That's something that's really important to me is clarity. I want to have clarity of ideas and I, I want to be able to execute ideas. So if I'm going to play something really sloppy, I, I want it to be sloppy on purpose, not sloppy because I couldn't execute something. So I, I practice technique a, a lot for that reason, because I do like things to be clear. At the same time, I like noise and I like, I like things that are unexpected but I still want to remain in control of what's coming out of my instrument. And I, that's a lifelong goal. Um, I'm not completely in control of it. And, it, you know, to, to be able to, ideally, I want to be able to hear anything and just have it come effortlessly out of the instrument. But of course, that's not easy. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm always working on that. Right. And I mean, you can always control the environment you're in because exactly. you're, you're playing with other people too. And sometimes it's nice when you have unexpected environmental factors. Like my guitar being as large and hollow as it is feeds back a lot. So sometimes I'll be in a certain room and all of a sudden the low A string will just go completely crazy every time I hit it. So I try to work with that and use it as opposed to feel like I'm fighting against it. When did improvisation become important to you? My window into improvisation began by learning scales and modes over blues and, and uh, jazz standards. So I was experimenting with that. And then free improvisation, I, I, start, I, I remember the first time I freely improvised with somebody. I was at a, a jazz summer camp, maybe early high school, and, and I had a friend at the camp who was into that, and, and he said, let's just play. <laughs> and I'd never really done that before, and, and it was a really powerful moment for me. I like both of those types of improvisation. I like improvising within a form, within a structure, and I like anything goes. And something I think about is how to integrate those things in a, in a way that's interesting, so it's not just one or the other. And when I first started, those things felt really separate to me improvising within a structure and improvising freely. And then later, I didn't want to feel like there was as much of a divide. So I've, I've worked a lot on trying to, trying to integrate kind of everything from my past into, into something, which again, it isn't, isn't easy to do. Yeah, what are some of the, how do you do that? <laughs> when I was in jazz school, I got a little burnt out on, on practicing jazz. And I felt like it wasn't working. It wasn't resonating with me. And there were people that did it much better and I kind of took a break and I was just working on my own thing. And by that, I mean, I, I was coming up with my own exercises, practicing intervallic ideas and trying to come up with my own chord changes and lines and scales. So that went on, I mean, maybe even eight years, I wasn't really practicing any kind of standard jazz. And then one day I was just like, I was listening to some jazz and it just hit me all over again. You know, like your old favorite record that you haven't listened to in years. And I thought, wow, I really want to be working on this. But then when I sat down to practice it, I was in the exact same place that I had been eight years before when I stopped. I hadn't, it was like I hadn't made any progress because I'd been working on something entirely different. So then what I started working on was how to reconcile this huge divide that had occurred. I've always been interested in the development of, you know, sort of tracing freer kinds of improvisation. And I, I was uh, lucky to be able to interview Lee Konitz last year, oh, wow. who, with, along with Lenny Tristano, was on one of the first recognized free improvisations from like 1949. And then there, you know, as jazz became more progressive, you know, the, the year of the Ornette School, 
and you know, Cecil Taylor with his certain style of notation, and I know Anthony Braxton has his own system, and Henry Threadgill has a system. When you improvise, do you take from any of these systems? Well, definitely I take things from Anthony Braxton's system because he's his music has been a huge influence on me. I studied with him all through college, and I've, I've played in his bands for the past 10 years as well. And the way he thinks about music is incredible. He's developed a whole universe of, that's really just his. I mean, if you looked at one of his compositions, having never seen one before, it would be completely overwhelming because there's so much information and there's so many levels of, of things happening. I mean, there's the notes on the page and then there's these coded languages. There's all kinds of shapes on the page which mean different things. Um, sometimes there's sounds like vocal sounds. Sometimes they're color-coded, so there's different colors. I'm speaking, I guess, I shouldn't even say that this is what his compositions are. I'm, I'm talking, I guess, about his ghost trance music. But, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, he has scores that are graphic, that have a ton of information. Uh, most recently, he's been working with iPods. So each musician in his group has an iPod with his whole discography on it, and people are DJing, and they're coming out of individual speakers, and people are playing and getting signals from him because he often conducts. I mean, there's so much. I, I couldn't even sum up the the breadth of, of his music. What's it like being a player in that kind of situation? It sounds like each tune may have a different system as mm -hmm. well, that it's not just one thing. He has a whole language and a universe, but then at the same time, everybody in the group has a total freedom of expression. I mean, you can play the composition. There's often choices. You can improvise, you can get away from it, you can play this theme, you can introduce another piece. Sometimes you have a choice to bring in an entirely new composition of his in the middle of another composition. So there's so much freedom. You're basically, you've been transported into this entirely new universe, and within that you're free to explore and, and try things. Sometimes there's hierarchical conductions going on. So Anthony Braxton will be conducting, and then there'll be other conductors also conducting smaller groups so you could be taking a cue from another band member or from Anthony. So, I mean, it, it's pretty crazy to be a part of it. Um, just, you know, the first year I was studying with him, I didn't even understand anything that was going on. You know, and I spent months studying these scores and trying to... That was how I learned how to sight read, because a lot of the music is incredibly difficult. And just sitting down and trying to wrap my head around these scores, I mean, it was a pretty crazy experience, especially to, to be starting that at age 18. <laughs> It's complex, but at the same time, he's such an open person, and he really does encourage anybody to, to jump right in. And he never says, no, you're wrong. He's not into that kind of idea of mistake. So in a sense, it, it is pretty open. I mean, there's so much material, and it, it can be overwhelming, but I think he does want to encourage a, a friendly environment where anybody could come in and, and try it. How did studying with him sort of lead you into discovering your own voice and your own sound? Well, he was always really encouraging, and not just to me, to everybody. I mean, he's such a inspiring person and just really encourages everybody to explore and, and do your own thing. So I think when I met him, that was the lesson that was being hammered into my head, you know, do your own thing, you can try anything. And so I think suddenly I, I didn't feel restricted. I felt like i free to explore, and 
I mean, it seems obvious to me now, but at the time, you know, I felt like there's these rules and you have to play this way or that way. And suddenly they weren't there. So I think that's the biggest thing I, I took from him. And also, I, I didn't know at the time that if I was going to be a musician, I didn't think I, it just didn't seem realistic to me. I guess I'm kind of a practical person. So trying to have some kind of a career in a in a very obscure musical field just seemed like it wasn't a good idea. So, you know, but then I had him and, and Joe Morris and, and some other teachers being like, no, just do it. You can do it. So I think it took it took a lot of encouragement. I think I made the decision probably when I was 19 that I wanted to actually try to be a musician. So if I hadn't had those people there really cheering me on and telling me, go for it, I probably wouldn't have. Were you studying music at Wesleyan or something? Well, initially I was going to study biology. <laughs> Quite different. I mean, I did, I was going to do music as well, maybe, you know, as a, a side thing, but I, I didn't really intend to be a music major. But then I got so wrapped up in it that I, I had quit all my science classes in the first semester. So that was, <laughs> the decision was, was pretty clear once, once I got involved in it. Guitarist Mary Halverson. For more information about her music, check out maryhalverson.com. To hear more jazz stories, go to jalc.org, where you can also find information on tours by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and upcoming events at Rose Hall, the House of Swing. You can also subscribe to Jazz Stories on iTunes. Jazz Stories is produced by Alexa Lim and me, David Gorin. We invite you to support Jazz at Lincoln Center by coming to the House of Swing in New York City or at the new Dizzy's Club next time you're in Dubai. For Jazz Stories, I'm David Gorin.